let's begin. Okay, so again, the name of our Chabura is Matzah Omotze, and, and this particular session is how to listen so that your wife talks. Now, again, I, I'm going to repeat this. The reason why it's called Matzah Omotze is because this is exactly how Shalman Elf defines a woman, certainly in terms of relationship. Ekiza Matzah, Isha Matzah Tov, I found goodness, I found happiness, I found success in life. A woman in a proper marriage is the greatest support. It's the best relationship. It's wholesome. It's harmonious. It's beautiful. It's the completion of the human being, completion of the man, completion of the woman. It's beautiful. However, if it doesn't go so good, then it's matzani marmi mothers. It's the isha. I find more bitter than death is the woman. Because when the marriage doesn't go right, the strife, the clash, the, ooh, the, it just, it, it's, life becomes very, very difficult. And ultimately, that is marriage. Marriage is either it's either Gan Eden or it's the other choice, and the other choice is rather ugly. But here is the point: so many times I've seen this again and again and again. It's your choice. I just received an email just today. I received an email from a woman, Rabbi. I read your book; it's wonderful, it's excellent. But will that work with a man who's abusive? My husband is abusive verbally, emotionally, and will it work with with such a man? So what does the first thing that crosses my mind? I'd like to ask one question, how do you treat your husband? Meaning, it's true. I, I have no question there are difficult people in the world. They're narcissists. They're obnoxious people. And it could be your husband is such a person. Maybe he is. I don't know. The test is, how does he act with other people? If he gets along with his brothers, he gets along with his sisters, his mother, his coworkers, he's really considered a great guy, but at home he's a louse, then I don't question he's a louse, and, but it's not a problem with your husband, it's a problem with the relationship. And gentlemen, this is the point, I've seen this over and over, two good people, fine meters, fine upbringing, and with a perfectly aligned outlook in life, and they're living in Gehenna. Because if you don't understand the relationship, if you don't understand gender differences, if you don't understand what a marriage needs, you're going to mistreat your spouse. You're not going to intend to, and you're not going to mean to, but you're going to. And guess what? It's like a mirror. Can mayim punim him? It's literally like a mirror. The way I act to you is the way you act back to me. If I show you a smiling face, you're going to smile back. Try it sometimes. Just smile at a person. It's almost balkarchas. Almost have no free will. If you smile at a person, a genuine, sincere smile, they almost can't help but smile back. But if you give them a dirty, nasty look, they almost can't help but look back. In the relationship, there's a mirror. Exactly what you put into that mirror is what you get back. And everybody, everybody has this attitude, it's my spouse, it's my spouse, it's my spouse. Here's a study, and this is not part of tonight's script, but here's a study, just so you know. And they ask people who get divorced, did you work on the marriage? 75% said yes. I worked way, way more than my spouse did. But that's the irony. 75% of people who get divorced say they work much harder than their spouse. But that's of all people who get divorced, 75% say they work real hard and the spouse didn't. But <laughs> it means you interview all the people, it's 50-50, it's supposed to be, right? But everyone has this attitude, it's my spouse, it's her problem, it's his problem, they're the problem. If only they'd be different. If... But that's the great secret, gentlemen. And you control the relationship. And this is more than anything. I'm going to, I can't stress this enough. I can't talk about it enough. Gentlemen, it is in your power. A husband's role is to romance his wife. If I would say this 10,000 times, I wouldn't say it enough. 
Love is the glue of the marriage. That's the essence of the fabric. It's the essence of what the marriage is. And invariably, I get this on a regular basis. I get a couple come in, and I ask him, how's the marriage? Good, Baruch Hashem. Ask her, how's the marriage? Oh, it's terrible, it's horrible. Wait, you guys married to each other? You see, it's almost always the husband is quite pleased with the relationship. He's happy in the marriage. The problem is his wife. But why? Why? Is she difficult? Is she obnoxious? Is she a crutchy, complaining woman? The answer is yes, she will be crutchy, complaining, and carping if her basic needs aren't met. And if the women invariably were unsatisfied in the relationship, and this is the Stipe Lagone's letter, and it bears reading again and again and again. The main hope of a woman in her world is to have a husband who loves her. When she sees that this isn't so, it crushes her spirit and can be close to Bikoch Nefesh. And gentlemen, this is in your ballpark. It's your job, the mini vacations, the gifts, the love notes, the date nights, text during the days, everything that a couple in love should be doing. But it's your job to lead that. It's your job, even if your wife doesn't respond as you would like her to, even if she doesn't seem so interested, if she sees again and again that you're focused on one thing, that you're focused on making her happy, she will be a different human being. It won't solve all of life's problems. And again, gentlemen, I'll be honest with you. There are many things that women do that make it difficult for the husbands to like them, let alone love them. And I'm not blaming this on the guys. It's a 50-50, it's a two-way street. But there's one area that's way more in your control than it is in your wife's, and that's the romantic relationship. You have to use all the tools that bond in the book. In the video book, I go through them more at length. But you have to use the tools that bond that includes attraction, infatuation, physical intimacy, respect, appreciation, friendship. But this one, gentlemen, romantic love, that's in your hands. And you got to plan a date. you got to buy the gifts. you got to send the text repeatedly during the day. Hi, thank you, man. Hi, smiley face with a love note. It's your job to let your wife know that you love her. And it's a chazal. It's a rashi. And the man focuses on this one you sowed. How can I make her happy? What could I do to make her happy? And why does that matter so much? Why is that so important? Because when a woman sees that in word, deed, and action, her husband is trying to make her happy, she gets this message. He cherishes me. When she knows that, when she fundamentally understands that, in her heart is joy, is happiness. He's still a guy. You know, he still has issues, but he's a good guy. What a flaw, but he's a good guy. She doesn't feel that she's cherished by her husband. He's a louse, he's a creep, he's a bum, and believe me, you're going to get the stuff, and it's going to come out. So I said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it again because no one listens to me. Gentlemen, not only is it your job, it's the easiest thing to change. Just do it. Go on the dates. Take her out. Buy the gifts. Buy the love notes. Do the considerate, nice little gestures. It's easy. It's cheap. It's the best investment you'll make in your wife's happiness, spelt your happiness, in your children's happiness, in your ultimate success. Gentlemen, it's the cheapest, easiest way. And this one, again, is in your hands. We discussed it in, in the first session. We'll discuss it more, but that really is it. And, but we're going to focus on something different this evening. So just a very quick recap. There are three pillars to a successful marriage, commitment, love, and learning to live together. Commitment comes from knowing that Hashem doesn't make mistakes. Hashem chose the right one for me. Love, as we discussed, that's the the romantic piece, and it's all the tools that bond, and it's not just romance. It's touch. It's all of the friendship, all the things that are involved. But it's this last one that is the most difficult, and that's learning to live together. 
And this session, we're going to focus on that. Again, one of the ten mistakes is forgetting that love is the glue of marriage, but this session, that's not what we're going to focus on. This session, we're going to focus on communication, and specifically in this light, how to listen so that your wife talks. And you'll see in a minute why this is so important. So let's begin this evening's session. Here we go. Hashem created from the ground all chayasasada, all wild animals, and all ofashemayim. Hashem brought forth everything in creation. Everything was brought forth. The sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, all of the animals. And after it all, Hashem created man. But it was only after everything was in place, after everything was perfectly ordered, that's when Hashem created man. And Chazal explained to us, much like a banquet, first you cook the meal, then you lay the table, you put the dishes out. When everything's ready, then you invite the guests in. The purpose in creation, the reason for creation was Adam, and therefore first Hashem did everything, created everything in creation, and then man. And then the Pesach says, After creating all of the animals, Hashem brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. Whatever man called the Nefesh Chaya is its name. And it sounds like a rather unusual thing to say. Of course, whatever he called them was a name. He named them. Shem said, name the animals, and he named them. Zushar, Zuchamar, Zugamal. Of course, it's its name. But a little bit of backstory over here. Before Hashem created Adam, Hashem was Nimlach. Hashem consulted with the Beis and Shemali, asked Malachim, should we create man? And Malachim said, what is the nature of this man? says His wisdom is greater than yours. And Hashem says, and I'm going to show that to you. And Hashem created all of the animals. And then Hashem asked each of the malachim, name the animal. But the Mepharshim and the Medrash explained, name the animal doesn't mean give me a name, like a convenience. In other words, we call this a table. We call this a chair. It's a label. It doesn't really refer to the essence. It's just a convenient term to refer to that object. And what Hashem to, said to Malachim was, everything was created by Lashon HaKodesh. Lashon HaKodesh is the underlying, undergirding system of everything in creation, and every name fits that item exactly. What Hashem was saying to Malachim is, tell me the definition of this animal, its essence, its proclivity, its inclination, define its essence in one term, because Hashem says that's how I created it, with olive bays, with words, and one word is the atomic essence of it, is a very description of its nature, define it, the malachim was stumped. Then Hashem created man, and Hashem said, name it, the animals. One by one, Adam went through each of the animals, Zushar, Zuchamor, Zugamal, defining the essence, attaching up the nature, the proclivities, the inclinations, defining the very fabric of the being with one term, and each one, Hushimo was exactly right. And when the Malachim saw this, they were astonished by the brilliance, by the wisdom of man. And then, a little bit later in Bereshus, we're told a fascinating Pasuk. Vayikra Adam Shem Ishto Chava. Hashem called, I'm sorry, Adam called the name of his wife, Chava. Why? Ki Kochai. Because she was the mother of all living creatures. So when it comes to name his wife, he calls a Chava because she is the progenitor of the human race, called a Chava. 
But if you look at the Balaturim, you'll see something very, very eye-opening. Says the Balaturim, why did Adam call his wife Chava? And says the Balaturim, because she talks. He called her talker. Talker. The Zoshamran is what the Gemarian Kedushin tells us. Yud Kavim Sichiyar Dalolam. Ten measures of conversation came to the world. Tisha Notlun Nashim. Nine were taken by women. Why did he call his wife Chava? And because Chava means talker. He called her talker, and that's what Chazal say that women talk more than men. Ten measures of conversation, ten measures of talk. Women took me- nine measures, they talk more than men. So again, just to understand exactly what the Pasuk is saying. He called his wife Chava, which means talker, as in the teaching, because women speak more. Now, gentlemen, if you think about this Balaturim, it should be rather, rather troubling. And let me ask the obvious two questions. Let's begin with the following. Number one, it doesn't sound very complimentary to call your wife talker. Uh, talker, like a gabber, like, uh, like yenta, yenta, yenta. And I call her yenta. Why? I call her yenta because, uh, she talks a lot. Women talk a lot. So I call her yenta. Doesn't sound like a very nice way to refer to your wife who you just recently met. I mean, they weren't quibbling. They weren't squabbling. They weren't married for 10 years and having all kinds. Of, so why do you do that? But I'll ask you an even better question. He called a chava. Why talker? Kihi aim kolchai. She's the m- mother of all future generations. What? Call a talker because she's the mother of all future generations? The progenitor of the human race? That's why you call a talker? That's not the reason to call a talker. And again, keep in mind, Adam's wisdom was tremendous, phenomenal. Each of the animals, you define their essence. And yet when it comes to his wife, he calls a talker, mechava, because she talks a lot. It sounds, A, not very nice, and B, it doesn't sound accurate. That's not what the Pusik says. She was the mother of all future generations. What do you mean because she's a talker? That's why she's the mother of all future generations? So I'd like to see if we could better understand what, in fact, the Pusik means and what this Balaturim is teaching us. And to do that, let me share with you a very interesting perspective. Here's a question that you really need to understand very fundamentally. What does a child need to thrive? If I ask you to define the key criteria, that will determine whether a child will be wholesome and well-balanced, whether it'll be a emotionally fit person or not, what is that criteria? Well, while you may have your theory, I'd like to share with you, it wasn't always what modern man understood. In the 1940s, physical contact with infants was considered harmful to their development, and this view led to sterile contactless nurseries around the country, meaning it was known and understood that if you pamper the child, you're going to ruin them. If you pick the child up, if you constantly touch them, constantly give them attention, you're going to destroy the child. You're going to make a pampered, spoiled brat. Don't do it. And you can read the psychology books of the 40s. You can read the medical journals of the 40s and advise doctors, nurses, and advise mothers who would listen, don't pamper the child, don't spoil the child. As a result, hospitals would keep babies isolated. They basically put them in a crib and keep them separate from anyone else. When they would, a child was adopted by a, an orphanage, they would give it a bottle, prop the bottle with a pillow, and leave it. No one would talk to it. No one would be around the bottle and baby. And mothers were instructed, don't pick up the baby when it cries. You're going to be teaching it to be a brat. You're going to be teaching it to be self-centered. Don't do it. 
Okay, now this was the United States of America. In fact, it was Western civilization in the 40s. And then a interesting discovery was made by a fellow called Harry Frederick Harlow. He was a psychologist, and he was experimenting. Now, in those days, they did a lot of experiments with uh, with monkeys. And the problem was monkeys were difficult to raise in captivity, and they were expensive to buy. So he was breeding his own monkeys, and he made an interesting discovery. He found that if he would, when a baby was born, if he would isolate the monkey, it was much cheaper, much easier to keep. So that's what he began doing. As soon as the mother monkey would give birth, he would isolate the infants, give them bottles to, to feed, and that's how he brought them up for about 24 months. And then he began experimenting with these monkeys. And here's what he discovered. The monkeys were severely emotionally disturbed. They couldn't regulate themselves. They couldn't conduct themselves with other monkeys. And they had to remain in complete isolation. When they were put into a cage or a room with other monkeys, they were either incredibly shy and fearful or incredibly aggressive, but they weren't what we would call normal. And what's now common wisdom is that monkeys, as well as children, need certain basics to be happy, to survive, and to become emotionally whole. This was not known in the 40s. This was his great discovery that a child, as a monkey, needs to be part of a home, to be supported, loved, nurtured, understood. What we understood as the now as the basic needs of a child. A child needs its attention. A child needs to be feel, feel that it's loved. If a child's left alone, the child learns neglect. The child doesn't learn to bond. The child doesn't learn to become a fully healthy, emotionally balanced person. And that's something that we understand now, but psychologists didn't. And it was interesting because Harlow's remark was, after 10 years of discovering this, and he came out with his conclusions that babies, like monkeys, need nurturing and need touch and need constant attention. He says, I guess what everyone understood as common wisdom, we psychologists now understand as well. A little ironic, but here's the point. A child needs to be nurtured. A child needs to be loved. When a child's needs are met, when a child cries and the mother comes to it, when a child coos and the mother coos back, when there's a bonding, when there's an attachment, the child grows up secure, the child grows up happy, the child grows up emotionally balanced. But the key to a child's thriving is the relationship with his parents, especially with his mother, but it's the early years that are essential because it's the relationship that teaches the child to socialize, allows him to regulate his emotions, allows him to bond, allows him to become a fully functional, happy human being. But here's the point. What are relationships? Relationships are social connections. And social connections are really one thing. They're created, developed, and repaired with one mechanism. That mechanism is something called communication. It's the mother communicating to the baby. And when the baby cries and the mother's there, when the baby smiles and the mother's there, and when the mother smiles and the baby responds, there's that communication, there's that connection. When the baby connects to another human being, the baby has a balance, the baby's needs are met, and the baby is able to thrive. And here is the point. When Hashem created men and women, Hashem made them very, very different. 
They have different natures, different abilities, different temperaments, and each one was perfectly equipped to do their job. What is the job of a woman? The job of a woman is to be the Akeris Abayas, the mainstay of the house. A woman is the one who nurtures, cultivates, supports, cares for all of the emotional needs of her children, of her husband. She is the Akeris Abayas. Akeris means the main beam that holds up the home. And that means to say it's her home and it's the people in her home. The people in her home are her children, her husband, her family, and she is the mainstay of that home. And she is the keeper of the relationships. She is the one who creates the bonds and keeps the bonds in many, many families. I've seen this time after time, large families. And when the children are all grown and they have grandchildren and grandchildren, as long as the mother is alive, the family is intact and they're bonded and they're connected. When the grandmother, as she gets older and older, eventually she passes away, the family dissipates. The Akeris Abayas, the center of the home, is the woman. But you have to understand what she is. If you want to define her role very, very carefully, she is the relationship manager. She is the one who nurtures. She is the one who cultivates. She is the one who cares for. But how do you do those things? How do you develop relationships? How do you nurture? How do you show care? You do that through communication, through speaking. The home. The home is the center. She is the center of a home. And the way she keeps the relationships going is through communication. And that's exactly what the Balaturim is saying. And you know why Adam called his wife Chava? Because she is the mother of all future generations. And the mother is the relationship manager. But how do you manage relationships? How do you nurture? How do you care? How do you show love? How do you bring people into your world? How do you bring yourself into their world? It's through communication. And that's what the Bible term is saying. And why did Adam call Chava Chava? Because Chava means talker. Why talker? Because she's a gab about? She's a, 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 a yenta? No. Because that's the essence of the relationships. The essence of the relationship is communication. The nurturing, the care, the love is given over through communication. She is the center of the house. She's the Akaris Abayas, the mother of all future generations, because talk, communication is the key to it. She was gifted with a unique capacity to nurture, to cultivate, to support, to care for the people in her life. And that care is done primarily through communication, through speaking, and that is her gift. She was given the gift of gab, but not to blab, not to be a yenta, and to create the bonds, to create the connections, to create the family unit and keep everything together, the relationship manager of the home. Okay. Now, that's an interesting yesod to know for life. And as a parent, maybe one day as a grandparent, as an advisor to other people, it's important to know. But what has it got to do with us? How does it affect marriage? So here is a very important question to address in marriage. What is the most important ingredient in a successful relationship, right? Let's say I would ask you that question. What is the single and most important ingredient in a successful relationship? So and that question happens to be asked by other people. Uh, as a matter of fact, Ted Houston, who's a psychologist at the University of Texas, asked that question. He studied 264 couples in depth. And one of the questions that he asked these couples was, 
what is the most important issue in the satisfaction of the relationship? Now, what do you think the answer was? So, interestingly enough, almost all the women said communication, 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 talk, talking, communicating, communication. And interestingly enough, almost none of the men said communication. And this you'll find to be a rather interesting irony. The most common complaint that marriage therapists hear from women is, we never talk. We never talk. We never talk. Okay. And probably the most common complaint marriage therapists hear from men is, all we do is talk, 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 talk. Now, somebody's got it right and somebody's got it wrong. Either we never talk or we're always talking, but something's inconsistent there. And I'd like to share with you the answer to this dilemma. If you would like the answer to this, then I'll give you a sociological experiment, and you'll know precisely the answer. I want you to go to a kiddish next Shabbos and listen carefully to the men speaking and listen carefully to the women speaking. Now you go to a kiddish and you go over listen to the women. You go over listen to the women and you'll hear something like this. Da 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 da. Oh. Da 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 da. Ooh. Da 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 da. Ooh. Great talking to you. Okay. Very good. That's what you hear on the woman's side over there. And then go to the men's side. And you'll hear something that sounds like this. Da 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 da. Da 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 da. And da 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 da. Hey, great talking to you, guy. Okay. You ever notice that women make all of these oohs and ahs and ohs and ah? Why? Why do they do that? Why do they make all of these listening noises? Men don't do that. And men listen. Women make all these oohs and ahs. Oh ah. Oh wow. Oh. Why do they do that? So I'll share with you the why. Deborah Tannen is a professor. She's an anthropologist, a sociologist. She's actually a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University, and she wrote a number of books, quite a number of which I've read. And one of her books is uh, called You Just Don't Understand, and it studies men and women in conversation. And here is her point. She very carefully studied men and women in conversation in many different venues, and many different ages, many different settings, and here's what she found. The why women talk is different than the why men talk. And why do women talk? Women talk to create relationships. They speak to bond, to connect. They speak to bring people into their world, to bring themselves into other worlds. They share. It's a vehicle to connect. It's a vehicle to bring people together. And they communicate for the purpose of connection. What do women talk about? And they talk what she calls Rapport talk. Rapport means building a rapport, bonding, connecting. And what that means is they talk about people and occurrences, what happened, what she said, what he said. That's what women talk about. And why they talk is to bond, to connect. What they talk about are the things that connect people. And occurrences, what happened, what she said, what he said, things that bring people together. Why do men talk? For a very different reason. Men talk to communicate. Maybe it'll be ideas, maybe concepts, maybe ways of doing things, hopefully in learning. But men talk for one reason. I have a concept in my mind. I want to communicate it to you. What men talk about are not occurrences and people and things. 
It's what she calls retort talk, as opposed to rapport, as opposed to bonding and connecting and when men talk about a subject of information. So it might be politics, it might be business, it might be sports, and maybe religion, hopefully. But that's the point. Men and women talk about different things for totally different reasons. And when you understand that, you'll understand one of the keys to marriage. Number one, your wife will bond to you, will connect to you as she connects to other people through communicating, through talking. And it's a very real need in a woman. And if you don't understand that talk means something different to your wife than it does to you, you're going to be missing out on one of the fundamentals of marriage. And this is what I call the sixth really dumb mistake that very smart couples make, not realizing that talk means something very different to a woman than it does to a man. And when a woman talks, she's speaking to bond, to connect, to share of her world, and to bring you into her world, to create that bond, that connection. That's often why she speaks. But men don't speak for that reason at all. And until you're able to climb into the world of your spouse, and you're not going to be able to meet her basic needs. When you understand that the reason why she speaks and what she's trying to accomplish is something very different than what you were thinking originally or the way you speak, and when you understand that, you'll be able to bond, you'll be able to connect. But if you don't bridge that gap, you're going to have a very tough time. So let me share with you a couple of tips for talking. Some of these are general tips that are not related to marriage per se, the first one especially, but nevertheless, in a marriage, it's a very key and essential um, tool. Number one tip for talking. Number one, by far, far, far and away, number one tip for talking is, and the right way to talk is, listen, listen, listen. Studies show that the average person listens for 17 seconds before interjecting. And gentlemen, I'll be honest with you, I'm guilty of it myself. Many a time people call me, call me for advice. And I know why they're calling me, they're calling me for advice. And before I let them, I, I have to stop. Let me listen. Let me hear what you have to say. Let me get the background. Let me get the story. And if you train yourself to listen, number one, you'll learn a lot more. You'll understand a lot more. But more than that, you'll begin to meet one of your wife's basic needs. She needs to bond. She needs to connect. Now, there are many tools that bond. For men, physical intimacy is a very big one. For women, it's important as well. But for women, one of the keys to connection is communicating, talking, by sharing, and by listening, by being together with a husband in conversation, it creates that bond. And you have to get accustomed to it. You have to get used to it. And you have to really learn to speak so that your wife and listens, you have to listen to your wife speaks, you have to learn to communicate with your wife. And the first rule is you have to learn to listen. What that means is when your wife begins speaking about something, just listen, be there present, listen to her. And it's also a very good idea And when you leave and when you come, tell your wife. Many times guys just leave and the, the, two hours later the wife realizes the husband left the house. The husband, he says, when you leave, when you come in, Tell your wife. She has to know. She has to feel connected. She wants a bond. She wants to feel connected. Again, the key to this is communication. You have to learn to listen so that your wife talks. Listening means, I don't tell guys to make listening noises because, I don't know, I, I've never done it, and it, I don't know, ooh, ah, but, but you got to listen. You have to listen even when it sounds ridiculous. Why, why do I need to know that? Because it's important to her, and it's important for her to share this with me. And she wants to tell me the story. 
I know women, and I've heard this and I've seen this on a regular basis, do you know that a woman can tell the exact same story to five friends? Five friends. She'll call one friend and tell a story, a second one and tell a story, a third one and the fourth one, and then a fifth one, the exact same. Why is she doing that? And the answer is because it's a number of things that she's doing. Number one, she's sharing, she's bonding, she's connecting. Number two, she's processing emotions. And a woman will get clarity in her emotions. She'll get a sort of sense of equanimity, a sense of balance. And she's going to process things by talking. And But more than anything, she shares because she cares, because that's the connection. And so you have to learn to listen so that your wife feels comfortable talking to you. But listening means exactly that, and listening. Listening, and it's a good idea if you can't make the listening noises because I get it because I'm a male also, and I'm not so good. At least ask questions. What do you mean? Why is that? You know, show interest, and it sounds as petty as it sounds. You know how many women just feel empty because they don't talk. They can't communicate with that. Why can't you communicate? I'm here. Ask me any question you need. I'll, I'll ask me anything. I'm, I'm here for you. And again, I've said this before, gentlemen. I know men that will take a bullet for their wife, but their wife feels empty and alone. And one of the keys to meeting your wife's needs is learning to listen so she feels comfortable talk. And you have to talk so that your wife learns to listen. That means you have to share with her. You have to share with her. I remember when we first married, my wife would pick me up at 6.30, Colo. I would get in the car, and we'd drive. And my wife would say, nothing happened today? i said, no, nothing happened. What happened? I mean, what, what happened? What, I don't know what happened. And it took me a little while to realize what she wanted. And gentlemen, here is a confession. My mother passed away quite a number of years ago. It was after 10 years of marriage that I realized I owed my mother a deep apology. You see, I went through whatever Yeshiva Bacha did, that horrible fear. I would call my mother every week. I was in a dorm. And once a week, I'd call my mother. And my mother would ask me that dreaded question, that question that every Yeshiva Bacha dreads, that horrible, fear-inspiring question Question goes like this. So, what's new? What's new? What's new? I don't know what's new. What's new? Uh, we learned the new toast. We learned the martial We learned the what, What's new? I'm in yeshiva. It's my life. What's new? But do you understand how thick I was? I didn't understand what my mother was asking. Her child had left home. Her child was now in the dorm. And she felt distant. She wanted to be in my world. She wanted to connect. She wanted me to share the details. The details didn't matter to me because they were foolish, silly little details, but they sure mattered to her. Why? And because it's sharing the details that creates the bond. It's sharing the details that brings you into their world and brings her into your world. And But it's sharing the details of your day, and you have to learn to talk. Guys usually don't do that. We don't really discuss the issues and the stuff. You have to be a little careful with the Lush and her aspect of it. And But I want to teach you guys a question that I learned when I was first married, that's a question I never heard. I was uh, 24 when I got married. I was 25, actually, 25. In 25 years of life, I never asked this question, and I don't know that I was ever asked it. And that question is, how was your day? How was your day? I don't know. How was my day? How was my day? I don't know. What, what are, how was my day? Why do women ask that question? Why? And the answer is very simple, because they want to know. They want to share. They want to be in your life. But you have to answer that question. You have to tell them the silly details that may not matter to you, but they very likely will matter to her. And when you learn to share, and when you learn, you know, you have to learn what does matter to her and what doesn't. If you're going to fill the air with nonsense and she starts yawning, obviously, you're not doing a good job. 
but you have to recognize what she values, what she considers important, and you have to learn to meet her needs. And one of her needs is communication and bonding through talk. And you have to learn to listen and you have to learn to share. And because the two are parts of the same, you have to create that bond through her needs. And by meeting her needs to communicate, you may not have those needs, but she sure does. And now let's move on to some very, very important people skills. This is people skills 101. As a high school rabbi, I used to teach you guys that are called people skills. And um, let me share with you people skills number one. Uh, when my wife was married, when we were married a bunch of years, um, and my kids were already, my girls were already teenagers, and one Arab Shabbos, my wife was cooking the soup, and she asked one of the girls, is the soup too salty? So my daughter says, why don't you ask Abba? Abba's right here. My wife said, I would never tell me it's too salty. I can't ask him. And it's true. If my wife would ask me, is the soup too salty? And it tasted like the salt mines of Johannesburg, I wouldn't mention a word. But why not? Why? She wants, she wants to know. Why, 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 why wouldn't I tell her? And gentlemen, open your ears and listen very carefully to what I'm going to say to you. And when you tell your wife, that the food is too salty, a little bit too hard, a little bit overcooked, you might as well say these words to her, you are fat and ugly. You are fat and ugly. Why? Why? You just told her the soup is too salty. I'm wondering, she asked you. She wanted to know. <laughs> Why? Because when she cooked that soup, she prepared it. The soup represents her, especially if she made it for you. And especially she takes pride in her cooking. And when you say to her that the salt is a little bit too much salty, the kugel is a little bit burnt, and the meat is a little bit overdone, what you're saying to her is very clearly what you did is not good enough. But you're not even going to just say that to her. What she's going to hear is, I'm not good enough. And, and gentlemen, this is a very, very important lesson. And do not. Do not share your opinions with your wife about what she does wrong and what she could do better. I know you're a gun fine cook, and I know you're a gun fine critic, and I know you have much to say. And if you would like to be a happy husband, keep it to yourself. But why? And wouldn't you like to know? Gentlemen, let me share with you a candid observation, and I hope my wife doesn't hear this one. My wife happens to be a great cook, and she cooks very well. When we travel, I eat peanut butter sandwiches. I go on the plane, and it could last for days, and there are many times when I get stuck in the airport or whatever, so I take on a regular basis whole wheat bread, peanut butter sandwiches, I'm good to go. Okay. On a regular basis, when my wife makes me the whole wheat sandwich, peanut butter on it, she'll ask me, how is the sandwich? Now, the first time she asked me that, I was like, what's the sandwich? She's a great cook. She cooks delicious food. A peanut butter sandwich is not up there. Why is she asking me that question? And it baffled me. And it took me a long time to get it. But then I eventually, the light bulb went off. You know what she was asking? She made it for me. She made it with concern, with love. And she wanted to hear from me that I appreciate, that it was good, that it, of course it's a peanut butter sandwich. I'm not going to be raving. Wow, the best oh, peanut butter. Wow, incredible. But Lamaisa, she did it for me, and she wanted to hear from me that I had it, I ate it, I enjoyed it, I appreciated it. 
Gentlemen, do you hear what I'm saying? When you present to your wife a face that's not smiling, that's not happy, when you present a critical face, but more than that, when you present words that are critical, even though you didn't mean it, and even though you didn't understand what it is, it's going to be very poorly received. And tell your wife the dress makes her look fat, and you are finished. You're done. But, but, but she asked me, is it slimming? You look beautiful. You look gorgeous. But, but to be honest with me, absolutely, it's gorgeous. It's so becoming. But why don't you just be honest with her? Because a smart man knows enough to keep his mouth closed. But why? She's asking you. The why is very simple. She's not going to hear that she looks heavy in the dress. She's going to hear she's fat, ugly, and not pleasing to you. And a woman at the core of her essence needs to know that she finds favor in her husband's eyes. And the minute you tell her she did something not right or wrong, not as good as it could be, what she hears is, he's not happy with me. And when a woman hears that he's not happy with me, she gets very, very insecure, very unhappy, very, very difficult to be around. Gentlemen, all you got to do, all you got to do to make a happy woman miserable is criticize her. Find what she does wrong. Point it out to her, and you will have a miserable wife, and you will have a miserable life. Find what she does well. Compliment her freely, regularly, and make sure she only hears praise from you, and you'll have a happy wife and a happy life. And, gentlemen, this is um, one of those big deal people skills, number one. <clears throat> Compliment your wife. Don't criticize. Keep it to yourself. But let's discuss another life lesson that I consider very, very important. Here you go. <clears throat> Many people have opinions. Opinions about politics, about sports, about whatever. You ever notice people get very, very touchy when you argue with them? As a matter of fact, most people. My opinion might have come at the flash of a moment. I may not have researched it. I may never have thought about it much. But the minute I express my opinion, it's my opinion. And what happens when you refute my opinion? Let's say I tell you the best baseball player is, but whoever, I don't follow baseball much. I say the best boxer ever was Sonny Liston. Oh, Muhammad Ali was much better than him. Jack Dempsey was the man. See what era I come from. In any case, and the minute I express my opinion, let's say you refute me. And let's say you refute my opinion. You prove unequivocally. You prove absolutely that I'm wrong. What happens? You see, when you refute my opinion, you didn't just refute my opinion. You refuted me. When I said Jack Dempsey was the best boxer ever, and I stood behind that, and you proved me wrong. You didn't prove the fact wrong. You proved me wrong. You didn't refute the opinion. You refuted me. Now, you may say, isn't that strange? And I would agree with you. It's very strange. Gentlemen, people are the strangest creatures in existence. And the one lesson you have to remember is, I, too, am a people. I, too, am a human being. And when you see people do the strangest things, and they get so touchy. You argue with their opinion. They get all inflamed and angry, and they get insulted and embarrassed. Just remember one thing. I, too, am a people. I am a human being. Why do I share that with you? Because let me share with you a tremendous, a tremendous life lesson. And I'm embarrassed that I have to say this, but it's worth saying. Don't refute your spouse. Don't slug her up. Don't argue with her. Don't disprove her. Don't do it, even if you're right. Even if you're smarter, even if you're 100% correct, 
don't refute, don't argue, don't slug her up. Do, save that for the base measures. Save that for even. Save that maybe for your friends, you're arguing politics or sports or whatever. But don't slug up your wife. Don't refute her. But why? I'm right. And I proved it. Absolutely. Unequivocally. It's the truth. So let me spell it out in case you don't hear the message yet. When you prove her wrong, show her how foolish she is, what will she hear? And will she hear, oh, my husband is so wise, so smart, he is so intelligent? Uh, nope, that's not what she's going to hear. And she's going to hear, he refuted my opinion. He refuted me. Here's the punchline. He hates me. What? What's that going to do with that? We were arguing about politics. We were arguing about sports. We were arguing about whether it's better cook the meat at 600 degrees or 450. What in the world does that have to do with you? It's really quite simple. Because when you understand that we human beings have a very, very sensitive constitution, we human beings have very, very sensitive hearts. When you refute me, you refute me, you shut me down, you slug me up, you push me down, I don't take well to that. But it's just my opinion. No, it wasn't. It was me. And if I don't take well to it, women are far more sensitive, and especially in a relationship like a husband and wife, and your wife hopefully looks up to you. And your wife hopefully waits for your praise and your approval. More than anything, in a happy marriage, a wife desperately craves her husband's approval. But approval means approval, not refuting, not slugging up, not arguing. And the minute you're going to disprove her factually about the stupidest thing in the world, whether it's better to use mouse traps or glue traps, if you refute her, she is going to hear loud as day, he hates me. Intellectually, she may not say that, but she sure will feel it emotionally. Now, let me share with you why this is such a big deal. First of all, again, don't argue, don't refute, don't you save it for the base matter, save it for the politics, and go argue with Ben Shapiro. Don't argue with your wife, number one. But gentlemen, let me share with you one of those facts of life. I guarantee, personal money-back guarantee, and you will have many, many complaints about your wife. I guarantee it. You could have married the best person in the world, the perfect match, and everyone could agree she's a mitzienis of mitzienis. I guarantee that there'll be many things that your wife does that just don't sit right with you. She's either too quiet, you know, too irresponsible, too timid, too noisy, too bold, too neat, too meek, too sloppy. Whatever it may be, we all got quirks, we all have idiosyncrasies, and I guarantee that you're vastly different than your wife is. Now, we discussed earlier the idea of learning to embrace your spouse and learning that your way is not the only way and my experience doesn't define reality. But I want to share with you what happens if you don't learn that lesson. And let's say you find your wife too domineering or she spends too much or she's flighty or sloppy or meek or cheap or too neat or too bold or too noisy or whatever it is, and you point it out to her in the best of intentions, in the nicest way, and with the best, nicest, most gentle way you can imagine, what will she hear? Will she hear, oh, I spent too much money? Oh, I was late again? Oh, I'm not neat enough? Uh-uh. He hates me. What, what's that going to do with what I said? I didn't say anything like that. I, I just said, with spending so much money, I can't pay the bills. That's all I said. But that's not what she hears. You're not giving her approval. And you're criticizing her. But she, who's going to stop her from spending? I don't know, but one thing for sure, you're not going to be very successfully married. You're not going to stop her this way. If anything, she's going to spend more money. And one thing for sure, you're going to wreck the marriage. But what am I to do? And there's so many things that bother me. 
So I'll share with you the great lesson of life. That lesson of life is embrace her as she is or suffer. You got stuff, as we said earlier. Remember, review the last session. And I told you that critical key Musser exercise, look in the mirror and say the words, I am a difficult person to live with. When you recognize I also got stuff, I also am either too neat or too sloppy, too on time, too domineering, not too timid, too bold, whatever it may be, I also got stuff. And if I find my wife difficult to live with, good morning, America, every human being has stuff, and getting accustomed, getting used to another human being is not so simple. And this is the moral of the story. Embrace her as she is a sufferer. But that's not just in big-term issues. I'm talking about the minutia and the little things. And if you're not careful with your words, if you're not going to speak words of approval, if you're going to be critical, and critical doesn't mean you're, you're horrible, you're horrid, you're uh, critical means and you notice what your wife does wrong, and you point it out to her, only for the best intentions, and only so that it will improve, and only so that I guarantee, money-back guarantee, you're not going to do so well with that. You'll never change that habit of hers, and you're going to wreck the relationship. Now, that's obvious, and we discussed it already. But what I'd like to share with you this evening is something that's not so obvious. And that is, there will be many things that you say to your wife, innocently, not critical. They might even be fine, regular, it may even be words of praise, but your wife is going to hear them differently than you intended them. And I would like to share with you why. And when you understand the difference of men and women in conversation, you'll begin to understand a little bit better what I'm referring to. Let me share with you an interesting example. I was a high school rebbe for about 15 years, and somehow it is that Rebbeim was supposed to be all worldly and all knowledgeable about all things of life. And guys, especially in high school, came to me with all kinds of issues. Now, especially when I was a beginning rebbe, I was like, well, how do I know this? I, I'm, all right, listen, Hashem helps, and you, you follow, follow the way, and you find the answers. Anyway, after a while, I began getting better at these things, and guys who come to me with questions, life questions, how to deal with parents, how to deal with siblings, how to deal with situations. And on a general basis, I gave advice, and the guys would leave happy. I would listen and sort of touch up the issue, define the, the solution, and generally speaking, the guys left happy. And guys would come to me on a regular basis with all sorts of questions, all sorts of issues, and this went on for about 10 years. And I noticed something very, very curious. Whenever a guy would come to me with a problem looking for advice, I would listen, I'd offer him advice, and almost always the guys were happy, it solved the problem, and things went well. Yet, when I'd go home, and my wife would ask me for advice, she was never happy, never pleased, and never satisfied with my answer. It was like my IQ dropped 80 points the minute I crossed the threshold. Like, what's the deal? And Yeshiva, I'm considered wise and intelligent, and here I'm like, I get it. And gentlemen, I'm embarrassed to say it took me 10 years to get it. Do you know what the answer is? The answer is my wife was never satisfied with my advice because she wasn't looking for advice. And she was looking to share. And she was looking to bond. She was looking to connect by sharing her life with me. She wasn't looking for my solution. And one of the great principles of conversation with your wife is don't fix it. And fix it is good when the boiler breaks. But don't fix a problem. As a high school rebbe, I was constantly fixing it. And it took me 10 years to realize she's not asking for advice. She's asking to share, 
and she's asking to bond, to connect by sharing her world. And now, gentlemen, here is that big word that I don't do well at all. Baruch, I'm married 36 years now. I'm very happily married. I love my wife. My, love, my wife loves me. We have a great marriage. But here is and one of those things that I don't do well at all, but I got to say it, and you got to learn how to do it. And it's this funny word. I'm not sure I know exactly what it means, but the word is validation. Validate. Just validate. Just validate. What do you mean? Is it invalid? Was it illegal? Alien? What do you validate? What do you mean validate? Validate. What do you mean? He's valid. She's valid. What do you validate? So I'll explain to you exactly what I mean. When do I discuss a problem with a friend? First of all, rarely. But if I got a problem and then I discuss with a friend, I go to an expert, I go to a Rebbe, I go to someone wiser, and I'm asking for advice. I, as a rule, as a guy, don't go sharing my stories, my son. I, I, I never do it. I'm a guy. Most guys don't do it. But you got to get used to the fact that that is what your wife is doing. And when she's sharing with you the problem, what happened at work, what happened with the children, what happened with her friends, what happened with her sister, she's not looking for your solution. She's looking for you to say, oh, wow, that must be terrible. Wow. Wow, that must make you feel so bad. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's, oh, oh. But do you understand what she's looking for? She's looking for connection. She's looking to bond with you. And what she's looking for is exactly what she's accustomed to with her sisters, with her friends. All of her friends will react exactly that way. They'll go, ooh, ah, oh. They won't fix it. They won't solve it. And they'll listen. They'll feel with her. And they'll communicate the fact that they share her burden because that's what she's doing. And she wants to share the burden, not to solve it, not to fix it. So don't fix it. Just listen carefully and try to feel what she's feeling and try to relate to. Again, we guys don't work that way. But if you don't learn to do this, I'd like to share with you what happens. Let's say you don't. You're the fix it guy. Whenever your wife brings the problem to you, what you should have done is you should have told the boss X, Y, and Z. You should tell your sister from now on in, da, 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 da. You should not put up with that stuff anymore. Anytime your wife comes to you with a problem, you fix it. Very nice. Now, that's not the way her friends listen to her. And it's not the way her friends connect to her. And you don't validate her. But what does she hear when you don't validate her? I want you to hear very carefully the thing. When you don't validate her, when you don't listen to her, when you don't let her know that you're with her in this, what she hears is, we are different. He's strange. He's like, he just is, I don't know what he does, like, what's his problem? But even more than that, when I share something important to me, and I let him know something that, that, that matters to me, that's really big in my world, he just answers with the ideas and thoughts. He doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care. And if you continue doing this, and she shares another story, and you fix it, and another story, and you fix it, and another story, and she fix it, you fix it, eventually she reaches the unquestionable truth. She finally gets it. He's a creep, and he's cruel. He's mean, he doesn't care, he's different than me, and I can't relate to him, he just doesn't care. He's a cruel, callous, cold person. What am I talking about? What am I talking about? Let me share with you an email. I doctored it enough to protect the guilty, but this is the text of the email. You can see it in front of you. I'm going to read it. I have a question. Again, this is my Sasha. I get these emails all the time. I get phone calls like this. It's sometimes frightening. I have a question. My wife overreacted extremely to a situation. 
She didn't speak to me from Thursday evening till Sunday evening, including mikvah night on Mosheh Shabbos. And my question is, now that things Baruch Shem have passed and are back to normal, should I discuss it with her, expressing that I felt very hurt, or do I move on accepting that this is the reality and wait for the next round? What would you answer that fellow? What would you answer that fellow? What would you answer that fellow? So let me take you back to as something we discussed in a previous situation. A young man comes home and sits there at night. As he's about to open the door, he says, Oh, Baruch Shem, I married a grounded, sober girl, not one of these dames. He opens the door to his apartment, sees his wife up on the chair, screaming, ah, What's that? What's that? What? 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 The cockroach. What? The cockroach. Ah! Stomps on the cockroach. The rest of the story, two weeks later, he's in base manager learning, doesn't have a cell phone. <laughs> Friend brings the cell phone. Your wife's on the phone. What is it? What is it? There are two of them. Come on, please. What? He gets in his car, drives home, steps on the two cockroaches. <laughs> I hope you're satisfied. Turns around, head back to the base manager. Okay. I know what he was thinking. What he was thinking is, what is her problem? She's some flighty, emotional dame, two bugs. You want me to stop learning, get in the car, drive a half hour to kill two stupid But What is her problem? I know that's what he was thinking. But what was she thinking? And what was going on in her mind? So let me begin with the following. When she sees that cockroach, what she is experiencing is a very simple emotion called terror. Now, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to you. But that is her reality. And if you share with her that she is irrational and that she is a flighty dame, there's nothing to be nervous about. And what you're saying in very clear terms is you and I are different. I don't care about you, and I'm a cruel person. Because she really is experiencing great fear, trepidation, terror. She's up and she's a mature person. She's 25 years old. Why is she standing on a chair? Because she's a, there's nothing to be afraid of. Because in my experience, bugs aren't scary. But that's my experience. But guess what? And that's not her experience. And in her world, she's terrified. And when you let her know in very clear terms, all right, I'll take care of the problem. But you should just know you're acting like a child. And what she hears isn't, oh, my husband, who's so mature, kindly, and well, even though he thinks I'm a child, is going to step on the bugs. Oh, that's so, I love him so. Uh-uh. I hate the creep. He's callous. He's cruel. He doesn't care that I'm terrified. I'm finally married. I don't have to worry about these things. I call my best friend home, my husband, to take care of me. And what does he do? He mocks me. He makes fun of me. What is this problem? He's a cruel, cold, callous creep. And as much as he feels that she acted irrational, as much as he feels that he has a tina against a complaint, how dare she do that? She's got a bigger complaint, and that is he's a cruel, cold, callous creep. Now, Rabbi, come on, this doesn't happen in the real world. Not like you just described. Oh, yes, it does. Every day, all day, twice a day. It happens all the time. And until you're able to recognize that your experience doesn't define reality, as long as you remain in that world where my experience is the definition of reality, you will never be successfully married. And you're never going to learn to communicate. Now, that's a big deal example, but I want to give you some smaller examples. In my existence, I'm now, Baruch Hashem, 62 years of age. I don't like to brag about that, but I have been around the planet for a couple of years now. In my existence, I don't ever remember, don't ever remember being overwhelmed, overwhelmed, overwhelmed 
listen, many stressful situations. I deal with stuff a lot. Over the years, things have happened. But being overwhelmed, I don't even know what the words mean. Yet, I don't know of a woman who is not on a regular basis overwhelmed. Now, stop it. There's nothing to be overwhelmed about. And nothing to be anxious about. Nothing to be, just stop it. And that's absolutely true in my experience. But if you share with your wife that there's nothing to be overwhelmed about, there's nothing to be nervous about, and what you're going to share with her is that you are different, that you don't care about her, and that you're cruel because she really is experiencing it. And you have to learn to speak and you have to learn to listen in her world. And when she says she's overwhelmed, you have to be there with her. But be there with her means not that you're going to be afraid, and not that you're going to feel overwhelmed or nervous or anxious. But there are times when you were anxious and there were times when you felt nervous. Try to remember what it felt like to you. So I told that guy, what I told him was, think about the fact of, imagine that there weren't two cockroaches, but there were two German shepherds. What would you feel? You'd feel terror. Well, that's what your wife feels. It doesn't make sense to you because you don't view cockroaches that way. But in her emotional reality, that's the reality she's experiencing. And you have to be able to climb into that world. And that means when your wife shares with you the fact that she's overwhelmed or she's scared or she's nervous, she doesn't know how this is going to, and you say the words we guys always say, there's nothing to be nervous about. Oh, dear, thank you so much. That was so reassuring. When you told me that, it calmed my nerves and everything's beautiful. Uh Uh-uh. And what she's going to hear is he doesn't care. He's certainly not in my world. And he's certainly denying all my friends. My girlfriends would never speak to me that way. It's so cruel. So, In fact, when she goes and tells her friends how cruel he was, he responded by saying, da-da-da. They all say, I can't believe it. He's such a creep. He's so callous. And I tell ladies not to talk to their friends. But the bottom line is, and that's what she's going to get from her friends. And you have to realize that you have to be able to climb into a world. And when she shares something that she's overwhelmed, and you have to be able to feel it with her, experience it with her, and say, oh, that must be terrible. That must be horrible. And don't even try to say, what can I do to help? You could wait for that one and try to be there with it, try to feel it as much as you can. Gentlemen, again, I'm not saying this is easy because I find this one very, very difficult, but I think that's a good example, overwhelmed. But let's deal with another one. I want to show you one more example that I find very, very telling. Your wife invited a bunch of guests for Shabbos, more company than maybe you would want, but she wants to have company. And she cooked more courses and more dishes than maybe you would want. But that's how she wanted it. And she likes to prepare a lavish spread. So she had lots of company, lots of dishes. And Motsi Shabbos, when she's cleaning up, she says to you these words, Oi, Shabbos was so hard. I prepared for so many dishes and so many people and so much cleanup. Oi, it's so hard. Now, any good guy, any good guy, when he hears his wife saying that, will say the following male response. Listen, do me a favor. You don't have to cook that many courses. You don't have to cook that many dishes. We don't have to invite that many people. I'm fine if I have a simple meal. And he's a good guy. And he's saying it out of concern for his wife. But guess what she hears? Disconnect. She's sharing something with you because, believe it or not, what she wants to hear is, oh, I feel what you're feeling. I hear what you're hearing. And, gentlemen, it's a different world than our world. It's a very different world. And you have to learn how to climb into the world of your spouse. I think this Balaturim is sharing with us a fundamental episode. Odomarishan had wisdom that was unparalleled. He named each animal defining its essence, its nature, its proclivity, its inclinations. And with one term, the Malachim was flabbergasted by his wisdom. When it came to his wife, he called the Chava, 
Why Chavak? Baltram says, talker. Why talker? She's the mother of future generations. Why talker, the mother of future generations? Because that is the key to bonding, to connecting. And the woman is the relationship manager of the home. She's responsible for all the relationships, the children, the husband, the family in general. How do you keep relationships? How do you nurture? How do you care? You do that by communicating, by speaking. The woman was given the gift of gab because that's the tool that brings people together. And when she speaks, she's speaking to share her world, bring you into her world, bring her into your world. And you have to learn to listen. And you have to learn to listen by not arguing, not shrugging up. And learn to listen carefully. If you can make listening noises, great. If not, just ask questions and be into it. And you also have to learn to share with her. You have to learn to share your world with her because that's the way she connects and she needs it. And if you don't learn to talk so that your wife listens and you don't learn to listen so your wife talks, you're going to have a great disconnect. And more than anything, when she brings you events of her world, and she brings you troubles and sorrows and worries, what you have to do is you have to be there with her. You have to empathize, have to feel it, don't fix it, don't change it, don't make it better, and be there with her, experience it, and you'll be astonished what happens. When you're there with her, she'll feel close. She'll go on, she'll emote for a few minutes, a few minutes, a few minutes, and you listen, and, and she'll feel like, wow, he really gets me. He finally understands me. You know how many times women say, my husband just doesn't understand me. And it's true, he doesn't, because he's thinking like a male. And it's okay to think with male when you're dealing with men. But if you want to be happily married, you have to realize your wife has different needs, and you have to climb into her inner world. She needs to express, she needs to emote, and she needs you to be there to listen. And when you do that, you're using one of the tools that bond, you connect, Hashem helps, and you create a marriage. Marriage is the most beautiful relationship in existence, the most harmonious, supportive relationship, but it requires a lot of work. The biggest work is learning to grow. And grow means climbing out of my limited dollar amos. The baby is born ultimately selfish. The baby's hungry, the baby cries. Baby's wet, the baby cries. The goal in life is to grow, to learn to be other-centered. And the biggest opportunity for growth is in marriage, because that's when you get to learn a different language, a different culture, a different way of looking at things, a different way of doing things that really make no sense to me. In my world, it's not scary. In my world, it's not overwhelming. In my world, it makes no sense. But it's not my world. My job is to climb into the world of my spouse and learning to listen with empathy and learning to listen with care, learning to listen so that you can support her and be there is one of the tools that bond. You have to use all the tools, but it's a very important one. And it's something that makes a tremendous difference. Okay, now, at this point, I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. They could be on this topic or any other topic. And that is the uh, material I would like, I wanted to go over for this evening, or some of it. I have more to go, but we're running out of time. But if anyone has questions, please feel free to put them into the Q&A, or you can raise your hand if you're brave. Hmm. Actually, one second, I have to get the participants up so I can see if you raise your hands. One second. Um, where is that? Okay, I think I see it over here, yeah. Um, and so if you would like to raise your hand, you can. I see, okay. Uh, let's see, someone has his hand up, yeah. Is that you? Yeah. Okay, yes. You have the floor. AC Landau, is that right? What, did you want to talk? Yeah, uh, Right. 
You don't want to, okay, if you didn't have your hand up, fine, I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I'll disable something. If you want to ask a question, please feel free to raise your hand, or you could type it into the Q&A uh, over here. If you don't want to ask a question, it's fine, I'll save my voice. Uh, but if you do have questions, please feel free to raise your hands uh, and ask or type it into the Q&A. And if you don't have questions, then I'm great because I, uh, I've already burned down my voice, so I am fine with not answering questions. If I'm missing questions and I'm not seeing it, um, someone could let me know. I'd appreciate it because I don't see anyone asking questions. Unless maybe it's so clear, if everyone agrees. It's usually not so clear. Oh, that's a good question. What's the answer to the email? Um, okay. What is the answer to the email? So let me tell you what the answer to the email is. Let's read the email, and I'll show you exactly what the answer is. The answer to the email is as follows. I have a question. My wife overreacted extremely to a situation. Stop timeout. That is a personal judgment. My wife overreacted extremely to a situation. Guess what? That is your experience. What she reacted was absolutely outrageous, uncalled for, and she overreacted extremely to X, Y, and Z. But guess what? In her world, she didn't overreact. She really felt hurt. She really felt put out. And she really felt you didn't care. You didn't realize it. You didn't feel it. But she did. And then she didn't speak to me. My question is, Baruch, some things that are passed and back to normal. Normal means according to my emotional reality, it's okay, because even though she was hurt, I wasn't hurt, I wouldn't have been hurt by it, so therefore, now we're back to normal. Should I discuss with it? I felt very hurt, I meaning I felt very hurt because she overreacted, meaning because in my emotional reality, nothing to be upset about. Or do we move on accepting this as reality and wait for the next round, the next round when she again overreacts? As long as you stay within your world, as long as you stay in your experience, you'll never understand your wife. She'll always overreact, and more than that, and she'll always harbor ill will against you for not even recognizing the pain she's in. Not only do you put me in the pain, but you don't even realize it. Gentlemen, let's be frank. We're going to cause our spouses pain no matter what. The wife can be the nicest person in the world. The husband can be the nicest guy in the world. In the heavy traffic of life, you can't help but make mistakes. You can't help but overlook things. You can't help but hurt your spouse's feelings. That's just part of the nature. And what you try to do is you try to learn from your mistakes, try to be as careful as you can, try not to repeat them. And when you do make mistakes, you try to apologize, you try to make good on what you did bad. Here's the problem. That can only happen if you're open to the single cognition that because I would not have been bothered by this doesn't mean my spouse wasn't bothered by this. Because I would not be put out by this it doesn't mean my spouse was not put out with it. As long as my reality defines what has to be and is, there's no way I can make sense to my spouse. There's no way I can understand her. Not only am I going to hurt her, I'm never going to be able to apologize. I'm never going to prevent it again. And more than that, when I do apologize, she's going to clearly get the message that I really don't care because I don't think what she did was valid, I don't, but she felt it, but I don't feel she had a right to feel it, but she really did feel it. I don't feel she should have, but she did. So all she's going to hear from me is denial, shutting her down. I don't care. I'm cruel. And guess what? It's not going to get any better. 
the answer to the email is there's only one answer. <clears throat> you have to climb into her world and recognize that she had those feelings. She overreacted in your feelings. You would not have reacted that way, but she really felt that way. And as long as you remain in your world, you never understand. If you're able to jump into her world and recognize that she really felt hurt, she really felt put out, and she was really angry because X, Y, and Z, and then you can begin to start being a support and you're able to listen. And you're not going to solve all of mankind's problems. You're still going to make mistakes. She'll still make mistakes. But at least you're in her world. At least she can relate to you, you can relate to her, and you have a hope of being happily married. That's the answer to the email. Okay, gentlemen, my, my voice is shot, so I'm going to call it now. Okay, thank you for joining. We have one more class next week in Hashem. I hope to sum up next week the, the end of the series, at least the end of the five-part series, and then uh, in Hashem, they'll be, uh, they are recorded. If anyone missed it, you can hear the recording. And if you have questions during the week, please feel free to email me, Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E, at the schmooze.com, R-E-B-B-E, at the schmooze.com. And please make sure that you get your copy of the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes video book and or, or and the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes book. Very, very important, very good for marriage. I wish you much shatzlacha and a very good week.